Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. Joining us today is Dr. Timothy D. Gerard, MD, MSCI. He was the lead author on an article that is recently published in Critical Care Medicine, the title of which is Delirium as a Predictor of Long-Term Cognitive Impairment in Survivors of Critical Illness. The reference is Critical Care Medicine, 2010, Volume 38, Number 7, pages 1513-1520. Dr. Gerard is an assistant professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, we've spoken with members of his group before, including Dr. Ely, and we know Brenda Pun from many of the videos on your isudelirium.org website. So I'm a big fan of your group's work, but I haven't had a chance to speak with you. So I'm grateful to have you here today. Thank you very much, Dr. Gerard. Oh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. So again, um, to let you sort of start out and perhaps talk about the scope of the problem, my understanding is that this is an analysis of some of the data from your famous awake and breathing controlled randomized trial published in The Lancet. But maybe if you'd like to take a few moments and sort of uh, paint the background for the listener about how you decided to design this particular study. Sure, absolutely. Well, this was really our first opportunity to examine in a careful way risk factors for long-term cognitive impairment in survivors of critical illness. We had been reading the literature and working with collaborators over the last decade or so and had noticed that there was a large problem with long-term cognitive impairment in patients who survive critical illness. Naturally, most of the critical care literature focuses on in-hospital outcomes with the holy grail of improved outcomes being improved survival. But in the last 10 years or so, beginning primarily with an article published by Mona Hopkins out of Utah looking at the long-term cognitive outcomes of 55 patients who survived ARDS, there have been a number of studies, up to a dozen now, showing that patients who survive critical illness may not all actually have good outcomes, meaning that many of these patients actually continue to struggle with difficulties both functionally and cognitively years after they've left the ICU. But despite the fact that up to a dozen or more now in the last several years, studies have shown that this problem is very common and for many patients is severe. And when I say that it's common, the studies have shown that anywhere from one-third to two-thirds of survivors have difficulty with cognition in some form or fashion. And this can be different for different patients, meaning that there are different areas of cognition that are affected. But the most commonly affected domains of cognition are those of memory. So patients have trouble with short-term memory and the area of executive function, which is kind of a higher-order multitask area of cognition that is involved heavily with planning or multi-step thought processes. These are very commonly affected in patients who survive an ICU stay, but all of the data 
that did such a great job of describing this problem in ICU survivors really yielded almost no information about who it is during the ICU stay that is likely to go on and have this problem months or years later. So we had the opportunity when conducting the awakening and breathing control trial to examine in over half of the patients that were enrolled in this trial. I should say that we did this at only one of the four centers that were involved in that randomized controlled trial, but at that center here in Nashville, Tennessee, the St. Thomas Hospital enrolling site, more than half of the patients that were enrolled in the randomized trial were involved at that center. And we followed the survivors in, at that hospital site and examined hospital long-term outcomes, both cognitive and psychological outcomes, at three months and 12 months after their ICU stay. So that gave us a great opportunity to, in a prospective fashion, examine risk factors in the ICU with a focus on delirium and determine which of those factors was significantly associated with the outcome being long-term cognitive impairment. So I was wondering, uh, maybe for fellows who may not have read your previous article, can you talk for a minute or two about the other trial, the Awakening and Breathing Controlled Randomized Trial? Sure, absolutely. We, we try to keep things simple in our research group, so we just refer to that as the ABC trial for short. But it does involve a paired sedation and ventilator weeding protocol, or another way of referring to it is the wake up and breathe protocol. And what we did was we took what is now considered the standard approach to ventilator weaning in the ICU, that is the spontaneous breathing trial, and we paired that with what we call a spontaneous awakening trial, which was really pioneered by J.P. Kress and his colleagues at University of Chicago, who and they originally published a randomized control trial in the New England Journal early in the decade, showing that patients who had their sedatives disrupted or discontinued at least once a day did better in terms of outcomes ventilator time and time in the ICU than those patients who had their sedatives continued and titrated up or down in a more gradual fashion. Well, we felt like it was a natural extension of that study to pair the interruption of sedatives or the spontaneous awakening trial with the interruption of mechanical ventilation or the spontaneous breathing trial. And pairing those two is what we refer to as the wake up and breathe protocol we conducted a four-center randomized controlled trial in which we compared that wake-up-and-breathe protocol to usual care, which for management of the ventilator did involve a standardized spontaneous breathing trial protocol, but for management of sedatives involved the evaluation of a patient's level of consciousness with a standardized sedation score and then the titration on a patient-to-patient basis of sedative doses to achieve whatever level of sedation was ordered by that patient's ICU team. So we call that patient-targeted sedation. And in that trial, what we found is that patients who are managed with the wake-up-and-breathe protocol, that is, that had their drugs turned off at least once a day as long as they met basic safety criteria, and then had that period of awakening followed by a spontaneous breathing trial, 
they had better outcomes in terms of three and a half more ventilator-free days or days off of the ventilator during the 28-day trial and four more days out of the ICU and out of the hospital, that is an earlier discharge from the ICU and hospital, than patients in the control group. And when we followed those patients for up to a year after enrollment in the trial, we also found that there was a 14% absolute reduction and the risk of death during one-year follow-up for patients in the intervention group compared with patients in the control group. Thanks very much. That was very helpful. I'd just like to make a couple points uh, and then ask you a question that will sort of lead into a discussion of the materials and methods. So uh, as per our previous discussion and my understanding of reading your manuscript, the, the major issues here are, A, if one makes the assumption that that the presence of delirium potentially can be treated. Therefore, it matters if the duration of exposure to delirium, whether or not that's correlated with, uh, as you mentioned here, long-term cognitive impairment as point one. And the second major point that you brought up with me previously is dissecting out the issue of duration of mechanical ventilation. And is it really the duration of mechanical ventilation that's the issue? And then I'd like to segue that into an issue of the 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 question I had was if, as you mentioned in your manuscript, that eighty four percent of your patients had delirium, uh, according to to the study, did that make it difficult to to make an analysis comparing uh, those who did or did not have delirium? I know I, I know I put up a bunch of points, but if you'd like to address some of them, that'd be great. Sure, that's great. Well, I'll start with the last uh, point that you make, and I think it's a really good one. There was a very high prevalence of delirium during this trial or during this study, that is over 80% of patients develop delirium at some point during their ICU stay. And I want to make that point that that number reflects the total percentage that had delirium at any time during their ICU stay, not necessarily the percentage of patients that had delirium at a specific time, for instance, at enrollment or on day two and so forth. So the, that prevalence is going to be quite a bit higher when you allow to, for the measurement over a period of 28 days and then say, did the patient have delirium at any point during that time? Now, this gets to one of the important points in our methods, and that is that we did not consider delirium as an ever-never event. In other words, we did not classify patients as simply, yes, they ever had delirium, or no, they never had delirium. If we had done that, I think we would have been faced with the limitation that you suggest, which is that only a small percentage of patients never had delirium, and that would significantly reduce our statistical power in comparing those patients to the group that did have delirium. Instead, what we did was we actually classified patients according to how long they had delirium in the ICU. So our exposure variable, or another way of putting it, is the predictor that we were interested in examining was actually the duration of delirium in the ICU rather than just whether it ever occurred or not. The reason we did that was for three reasons. The, first of all is that, that I, the reason that I've already mentioned um, being one of statistical power, it's well known that when you categorize a variable that's actually continuous, that you significantly lose statistical power, and you also increase the likelihood of residual confounding. That is, you increase the chance that your results are going to be biased. 
So by actually allowing that variable to be continuous duration of delirium rather than a categorical ever-never delirium, we're improving our ability to statistically determine whether or not delirium is related to the outcome. Or even dichotomizing it to greater than five days of delirium, less than five days, something like that? Right, absolutely. Any sort of dichotomization like that, or even a categorization, for instance, you could say, you know, one day or less, two to four, five or more, even that kind of categorization is going to result in some loss of power and potentially some bias. Okay. So we allowed that variable to be continuous. Now, I think there's an, an even more intuitive reason to look at it as duration of delirium, and that is that biologically, it makes a lot more biological sense, or it seems more biologically feasible, that if you had a patient with zero days of delirium, that is never delirious, that they're probably more similar to a patient with one day of delirium and then a, a very quick recovery than they are to a patient with 10 days of delirium. That is a prolonged period of delirium in the ICU. You know, most clinicians would not say, oh, that patient who had one day of delirium, even though, yes, they technically had delirium, should be lumped with the patient who had 10 days of delirium instead of being considered more similar to the patient who had zero days of delirium. So we thought that there was a biological rationale for evaluating delirium as a duration rather than as a dichotomous variable. And we do that in many other ways with ICU studies. For example, we don't look at ventilation as simply did they ever get ventilated or never get delirium ventilated, typically we look at the number of days that they were ventilated, and we consider it a good thing if we can reduce that period of time, and we consider it a bad thing for that patient if that time is increased. The last reason that we did this, that we looked at duration of delirium, is that there actually is a ev evidence base to suggest that it has prognostic significance. Now, it's never been examined in the way that we did as a predictor of long-term cognitive impairment, but there have been two studies that showed that duration of delirium is actually a, a predictor of long-term survival. A, a more recent study by Margaret Prezani and her group at Yale looked at this, published their paper in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine in the last couple years, and then also my colleague Wes Ely and his group here at Vanderbilt had examined duration of delirium as part of their JAMA publication that looked at delirium as a predictor of survival in patients who were in the ICU. And then you point out, uh, again in your materials and methods section, that a secondary independent exposure variable was duration of mechanical ventilation measured from the time of intubation to the beginning of successful unassisted breathing. That's right. So what we wanted to do was examine not only duration of delirium, but also duration of ventilation as a potential predictor, because we know that patient, the longer a patient is ventilated in the ICU, the more likely they are to have delirium during that period of mechanical ventilation, and that the risk of delirium in the ICU goes down substantially when a patient is no longer mechanically ventilated. So anywhere from 85, 80 to 85% of mechanically ventilated patients will experience delirium at some point during their ICU stay. But most studies show that 30 to 50% of non-ventilated ICU patients have delirium during their ICU stay. So by examining 
duration of mechanical ventilation as an alternative predictor, that allowed us to ask the question, is delirium simply a surrogate for the duration of critical illness in general, or is there something unique about duration of delirium as a predictor of long-term cognitive impairment that isn't captured when you simply look at some other type of organ failure in the ICU, such as duration of mechanical ventilation? And then uh, just to, to move it along, I just want to mention, so importantly, you mentioned your covariates, which were collected at enrollment and included age, years of education, pre-existing cognitive function, severity of illness, severe sepsis, ABC controlled trial treatment group, and total doses of benzodiazepines, opiates, and propofol. And I guess, how did you deal with whatever their pre-existing cognitive uh, function or dysfunction may have been? That must have been a bit of a challenge. That is a challenge, and that's really one of the million-dollar questions when conducting outcomes research specifically on ICU patients, because these are patients who we have no way of predicting will end up in the ICU with a critical illness. Unlike the patients, for instance, who undergo cardiac surgery, which is a population that's been extensively studied from the standpoint of cognitive outcomes, we can't go into a preoperative clinic and say, we want to study these patients before their surgery and then after their surgery to determine whether or not there was a change in cognition. So we have a challenge because we can't directly measure cognition prior to pre-critical illness and post-critical illness in most of our studies, and instead we have to rely on a surrogate measure. Fortunately, there are some well-validated surrogate tools for identifying cognitive impairment prior to an acute illness. And the one that we use, which is referred to as the Informant Questionnaire of Cognitive Decline in the Elderly, or the IQ code, has been validated and used in a number of other studies, primarily in the stroke literature. And this involves asking the patient's surrogate, which is typically a family member who has known them for a long period of time, whether or not there have been changes in that patient's ability to do a variety of cognitive-related tasks, such as balance a checkbook, remember directions, remember phone numbers, etc. There are about 20 questions on that surrogate questionnaire. And that allows us to measure in a validated way with a continuous measure that patient's pre-existing cognitive performance and then adjust for that in our analyses looking at their long-term cognitive performance after their ICU stay. And before we get to the results section, which we're going to do next, I just wanted to ask you a question um, and perhaps learn from you about one of your statistical analysis sections. If I, if I could, I'm just going to read in here. It says, to correct for possible overfitting in the main analyses, we also conducted sensitivity analyses using a propensity score to reduce the number of covariates included in the models predicting cognitive performance. Maybe if you could to teach maybe fellows what, what this means. Right, absolutely. Well, well, it sounds more complicated than it is when you, when you read what I've written back to me. But really what we're trying to do here is avoid overfitting. And overfitting is the, a problem that occurs when you take a data set and you analyze a large number of variables in a multivariable analysis. And when you analyze a lot of variables, 
you can think of it as similar to doing multiple comparisons. I think that most of the listeners will be familiar with the idea that multiple comparisons, that is, doing multiple analyses with the data set, will increase the probability that you will find a significant result simply by chance. Um, one way of looking at that is that every set of data has idiosyncrasies that really don't reflect the underlying question that's being examined, but are just simply occurred by random chance because those data just happen to be put together in that way. And when you ask a question enough times or you ask enough questions, you'll eventually get a positive result. Overfitting is that occurring in the setting of multivariable regression. So you might be thinking that you're asking only one question because you're doing one regression analysis, but really by putting multiple variables into those anal into that regression model as covariates, you're introducing the probability of finding a spurious or erroneous result. That's called overfitting. The general rule of thumb is, and it depends on the outcome you're examining, but when examining a continuous outcome, as we did, because our outcome was the average score on this battery of cognitive tests, when examining a continuous outcome, the rule of thumb to avoid overfitting is that your population that's being examined should have 10 to 20 patients for each variable included in your analysis. So in your analysis, you included age, years of education, pre-existing cognitive function, severity of illness, severe sepsis, ABC treatment group, and total doses of benzos, opiates, and propofol. That's right. So we included nine covariates in addition to duration of delirium. So we're looking at 10 variables. If we follow the rule of thumb, we should have at least 100 patients in our analyses to be confident that we're avoiding overfitting. But as you can see from the paper, we actually had 77 patients. So our analysis is at risk for overfitting. To account for that or to do a secondary analysis that would give us some indication whether our primary analysis was in fact biased by overfitting, we used an approach called propensity score analysis, which allows us to actually take multiple variables and compress them or reduce them into one covariate. So instead of including each individual covariate in our regression model separately, we actually use the propensity score to reduce our covariates to one value that is the propensity score itself. And that regression model, if it yields the same result as our primary model, suggests that overfitting was not a significant problem in our analyses. Mm -hmm. And that, in fact, was the result that we found. And the concept, just again for the for fellows or whoever is listening that might not understand, but this propensity score is the likelihood for a particular patient that they will have the covariates that you mention. Is that the idea? That's that's absolutely correct. So the variable that was being reflected by the propensity score was actually duration of delirium. Okay. So the covariates were analyzed in a regression model which generates a propensity score as 
they were related to duration of delirium. So that value, that propensity score itself, tells you the probability of more days of delirium versus less days of delirium. Got it. And so then to focus in on the results, I'm just going to summarize quickly and then let you make some comments. So figure one, again, as you point out, uh, 76 patients tested at three-month follow-up, 52 patients tested at 12-month follow-up with a, an initial 187 patients enrolled in the clinical trial. And then I thought the two tables that I thought were worthy of discussion were tables two and three. So in table two, you talk about cognitive outcomes during follow-up, and as you succinctly describe it, that at three months, 79% had evidence of some impairment, and at 12 months, 71%. You then broke it down nicely to say severe impairment at three months was 62%, mild to moderate was 17%, and then the similar variables looking at it at one year. It was interesting to me that the total percentage went down, as I mentioned before, from 79 down to 71%, and the severe impairment went down from 62% down to 36%, and the mild to moderate went up from 17% to 35%. Uh, would you like to make any comments on that? I know you, you have in the, in the manuscript. Right. Well, this is, a, this is an interesting set of results because in some ways it's difficult to know exactly what is happening to each of these patients in that at least when you look at summary statistics such as those that you've described. For example, the percentage of patients with severe impairment was very high at three months. 62% of those assessed at three months had criteria for severe impairment. And we actually used very restrictive or conservative definitions for severe impairment, meaning that you had to have quite severe impairment, very poor results on your cognitive test for us to classify you as severely impaired. And yet, nearly two-thirds of patients at three months had significant severe impairment. But that number went down significantly over time, such that nine months later, one year after these patients were enrolled in the study in the ICU, 36%, or about a third, had severe impairment. Now, one question that we wonder, and that I think the listeners may wonder is, well, is that because many of the patients improve, or is that because patients with severe impairment actually didn't receive one-year follow-up because they had either died or simply were lost to follow-up. And fortunately, we did not have a very high rate of patients lost to follow-up, and we know what happened to most of those patients, but it's not a simple answer. Some of the patients did improve, and that is in part why the percentage of patients with mild to moderate impairment actually goes up from three to 12 months. It's because some of the patients who were previously severely impaired have now shifted into the mild to moderate impairment group. And there are others of those patients who actually died during the follow-up. You'll see that we tested 52 patients at 12 months and only 76 patients are compared with 76 patients at three months. 12 of those patients who weren't tested actually died in the interval between three and 12 months follow-up. Just for the interest of time, I'll focus in on Table 3, which I thought was fascinating. And again, for teaching purposes, I, 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 had, I understand the concept of a multivariate logistic regression analysis, and I know that you pointed out that our 
the the outcome is not dichotomous. But conceptually, I, I thought it was very interesting where instead of saying, is the presence or absence of delirium associated with the presence or absence of uh, cognitive dysfunction, you made both of them uh, continuous variables. And I'll, I'll try and interpret it and then you can correct me. But what you were saying here and your p-values were significant was that at, at, for example, your association with three-month outcome, if your uh, delirium days went from one day to five days, going from the 25th to the 75th percentile, that was associated with a 4.6% decrease in your, I guess, battery of tests that was associated, that was to assess cognitive decline. That's correct. Yeah, that's a, that's a good explanation. I think um, w the best way to understand this table is to look at it side by side with the figures that are shown on the next page. And for instance, what you can see in panel A of figure two is the graphical results of the regression model that gives us the first row in table three. That is, you're seeing graphically the relationship between delirium days and the association with three months outcome. And remember, our outcome was a continuous variable. So on the y-axis, you see that there's an adjusted mean t-score. What we did with this battery of tests was to convert each result on each test to a t-score. And you may be familiar with t-scores from other areas of medicine, such as bone density and so forth. A t-score is telling you what was that patient's relative performance to others who had the same age and level of education. And a 50 on the T-score is considered right there in the middle, totally average performance. And 10 points higher or lower, that is 60 or 40, is one standard deviation better or worse, respectively, than a population with the same age and the same level of education. So you can see that in that panel A of figure two, even patients who had zero days of delirium, no delirium at all during their ICU stay, those patients did not score average on the battery of tests. They, on, they had a, an average score of about 44, 45 in that range, which is half a standard deviation below what people with the same age and same level of education would have scored had they been tested. Who are not critically ill. Who right. are not critically ill, right. absolutely. And as the duration of delirium increases, that line goes down, as do the confidence intervals there, showing you that the longer a patient's delirious, the lower or worse their results on the cognitive tests. Now, the number that we show in Table 3 with the point estimate of negative 4.6 tells us that, as you said, the score would be about 4.6 points lower if a patient had five days of delirium rather than one day. And those are arbitrary choices because it is a dichotomous, I mean, it is a continuous exposure variable. They could have had anywhere from zero 
on up to 28 days because that's how long they measured. The reason we compared five days to one day is because we were trying to reflect what we were observing in our population. That was, as you said, the 75th percentile and the 25th percentile. So about a quarter of patients had zero or one days of delirium and about a quarter of patients had five or more days, and then the other 50% were somewhere in the middle. So let me make uh, two points, and then we'll let you talk about what you believe the clinical implications of this article are. So the first was that, as you hypothesized in Table 3, the second part was to show that uh, when you did the same analysis looking at ventilator days, the p-values didn't seem to pan out, meaning that the if your duration of mechanical ventilation increased from the 25th to the 75th percentile, uh, uh, controlling for other covariates, that did not appear to be associated with a statistically significant decrease in your point estimate. That's correct. Okay. And you can see there that we provide not only the p-values, but also the confidence, confidence intervals in that table. And the confidence intervals about around the point estimate for the association between ventilator days and outcomes are very wide and clearly include zero. So there's no indication that there's any relationship between duration of time on the ventilator and these outcomes. Instead, there's something specific about duration of delirium as a predictor of long-term cognitive impairment that is not captured when we look at duration of mechanical ventilation. And one last question. In in Figure 2, Panel B, it sort of looks to me like if you're greater than five days of delirium, your your T-score seems to level out. And what do you think that means? That's a very good observation, and that reflects several things. First of all, it reflects something about our methodology and we explained in the method section that we actually used nonlinear regression, so we included restricted cubic splines, which is a statistical technique that allows the program to determine not just a linear relationship but a nonlinear relationship. And our results actually revealed that there was a significant nonlinear feature to the association association we are examining. So we had statistical results that confirm what your eye is telling you, which is that there's a change in the slope there after about five days. Now, the reason for that is something that I can only hypothesize about in that we can't say if that's reflecting a true biological relationship that is after five days of delirium, those, there's no more predictive ability from the biological standpoint between duration of delirium and long-term cognitive impairment, or if this is simply a a function of the fact that we had very few patients to examine who had more than five days of delirium in the ICU and therefore had less statistical power after the exposure variable increased to five days or more. You can actually see that in our graph. We include what's called a rug plot there, and those little hash marks show you individual patients who had the duration of delirium according to the x-axis, and you can see there are not very many after about five days. Right. Um, Well, so, um, again, I knew this would be complicated to go through, but I thought it was extremely important because you're trying to answer some of these very important questions, and I thought I'd let you take the last couple of minutes to share with the members of SCCM what you think the... uh, clinical implications of your study are? 
I think that's a really important question, and it's still one that we're wrestling with ourselves in that we don't know whether the reason that delirium is associated with long-term cognitive impairment in this study is that delirium itself is injurious to the brain or whether or not it's simply a biomarker in the same way that other biomarkers that we use in the ICU are reflecting an underlying physiologic process. Could it be that as a patient is delirious, injury is occurring in real time in the brain and that if we treat their delirium and those symptoms resolve, we're actually treating the injury in the brain and preventing long-term cognitive impairment? Well, we certainly think that's a possibility and it's one that we want to test in future research studies. Is it also possible alternatively that if you suppress those symptoms of delirium by giving a medication that alleviates the symptoms, that the underlying injury continues to occur, that's possible as well. So we don't yet know whether these results indicate that treating delirium could prevent long-term cognitive impairment. I think that we'll only learn that in the context of interventional trials in the ICU. But I think that nevertheless, these results can be important in in the, at the current time as we take care of our patients in the ICU because we know from this, this study that prognostically duration of delirium in the ICU can be of importance as we discuss potential outcomes with our patients. As we tried to describe for family members what the outcomes that, that might be for their loved one if they were to survive their ICU stay. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Gerard, for joining us today. We've had a very important and exciting discussion focusing in on the challenging topic of delirium in the intensive care unit uh, from the group from Vanderbilt. We've been speaking today with Dr. Timothy D. Gerard, MD, MSCI, focusing on his manuscript published in the July 2010 issue of Critical Care Medicine, the title of which was Delirium as a Predictor of Long-Term Cognitive Impairment in Survival of Critical Illness. Lots to think about on this one. Thank you so much, Timothy, for being with us today. You're welcome very much. Thank you. This concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information, as well as nearly five years of archived podcasts. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. Join nearly 6,000 of your colleagues from around the world in sunny San Diego, California, USA, January 15th to 19th, 2011, for SCCM's 40th Critical Care Congress. Celebrate SCCM's contributions to critical care medicine over the past 40 years and take part in shaping the future of the society and your profession. Congress showcases the most groundbreaking developments and research in critical care medicine through a variety of educational opportunities, including hands-on workshops, captivating symposia, compelling sessions, and popular poster presentations. Visit www.sccm.org Congress for more information or to register or ask to speak to a customer service representative. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. 
Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD, FCCM. Dr. Savell is the Medical Co-Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MDFCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.